Come on, control the mic. Is Okay, people. Yeah. Is that, wor is that, is that working? Is, this, can you, is, it, is my mic working? Yeah, okay. Right. Uh, first, I'm really sorry uh, about the mess that we got into about the timing of the class. Um, what happened was that uh, uh, the class would it, should it, was supposed to be 6.30 to 9.20, which is the way I run all my classes. Um, but some, uh, just, there was just a mistake in the... Uh, organizational department somewhere and they put it down for five till nine um, and uh, I didn't notice it when they sent me a notice kind of confirming the arrangements of the class so it's partly their fault but it's also partly my fault so um, I apologize for it um, there are some people who are very keen that the class should not go on till 920 because they've got to drive to Santa Barbara or something um, there are other people who are very keen it shouldn't start at five o'clock because they want to uh, they've got to get from work and they'd like to get their dinner um, so the compromise is that from Wednesday onwards for the rest of the class, uh, oh yeah, there's an, another kind of quirk, is that we only need three hours anyway because um, you spend uh, the other hour uh, doing the group work on, on uh, Moodle, uh, looking at each other's, commenting on each other's work and so on. So that's why the class is only to be scheduled for three hours. So what we shall do is from Wednesday we'll meet from 6 until 8.50. Uh, so all the timings in the... Um, uh, syllabus and the course notes that keep saying 6.30 to 7.50 and 8.10 to 9.20 we'll keep having to pull back uh, by half an hour uh, and uh, I hope that that will mean that the people who like the time to get dinner will get the time to get dinner even though not quite as much as they thought they might have been going to get and that the people who have got to uh, drive to San Diego uh, will um, find that we're finishing, we'll be finishing at the time that they thought we were going to finish anyway um, but I apologise for the mess up and uh, for people who showed up at five o'clock um, this afternoon for the class. Um, I've uh, sent you um, links to get the uh, syllabus and the course notes and I'm going to assume that you've got those with you. If you haven't, then you need to look over uh, somebody else's copy uh, for this evening. Um, the syllabus tells you how the course works. Uh, and I'm not going to go through it now. Uh, you need to look at what the syllabus says about how the course works. If there are things you don't understand, um, then as it says in it, uh, send me an email tomorrow uh, and ask me, uh, what it, tell me what it is you don't understand. Uh, and either I'll give you a personal reply uh, if, it's, uh, if it looks to be just something that you need, I need to explain to you, or I'll explain it in the class on Wednesday. Um, <coughs> You will see that there, for each of the classes there's homework to do. Uh, so there's some homework to do for Wednesday. Uh, usually the deadline for the homework I think is Tuesday evening. Uh, but one of the things that we have to do tomorrow um, is, or rather first thing Wednesday, um, is that we have to sort you into groups uh, for the online posting discussions. So uh, any of you who haven't enrolled on Moodle, it's uh, vital that you do that by tomorrow so that first thing Wednesday um, we can sort the groups out and then you can uh, post your homework during Wednesday. Um, if you... Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. Uh, 
Um, and then what the way, th the way that thing will work for each of the classes is that I shall uh, look at the homework um, focusing on questions that you've raised in the homework before the class uh, so that in the class I'll be able to talk about some of the questions that you've raised in your homework um, uh, but though you'll also be commenting on each other's homework uh, to one another as the kind of discussion element in the class. Um, one other preliminary thing is to point out to you that it's really demanding to do this course in five weeks. Uh, it's, uh, there's the same amount of work to do as there is in a ten-week course, um, and, uh, so, but, you, but you're concentrating it into half the time, or a bit more than half the time, allowing for the fact that the, uh, the second paper is due a couple of weeks after the lecture part finishes. I reckon it, it takes, it's going to take you about 17 hours a week to do the course. The classroom time, uh, the moodling time, um, and the homework. Uh, and uh, so you need to uh, work with that fact. Uh, don't be unrealistic. If you say to yourself, I cannot possibly fi find 17 hours uh, to do this class, um, then you, you need to pull out and let somebody who's on the wait list um, take your place. Um, it's, uh, it's quite demanding to do it in the time um, that, 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 that we have with it being a, a five-week course. Just consider yourselves lucky it's not a two-week intensive, eh? <laughs> um, uh, sorry about all these, bits, these extra bits of technology which arise out of the fact that um, uh, all being well, and that's quite a big statement in itself, uh, the classes will all be both uh, on Moodle and on iTunes uh, after the class, uh, I think they'll be put, it, they'll be put on uh, tomorrow uh, morning. Um, and that's so they're available to anybody, but, but also, as you'll see from the syllabus, so that if you miss a class, um, then what you need to do is to listen to the class on one of those other two um, uh, sources uh, and make some comments to me about it, because then I know you really did listen to it. And ask the uh, questions that, that, uh, in, a, in a message to me that arise out of the class for you, and I'll uh, try and reply uh, to them, and that's the way that we'll solve uh, the problem if any of you need to, uh, to miss a class for some reason. Um, and uh, we'll sing the song that has disappeared, but it will come back like magic in a minute. Um, it's the song I always like to sing at the beginning of a quarter uh, because it expresses uh, a prayer for what we ask God to do for us uh, in the uh, study that we're doing together. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, a lamp to my feet. Thy word like honey to my lips is sweet. Thou my delight, my joy thy command. My dwelling ever be the palm of thy hand. Gracious God, we ask you to be with us through this quarter. We pray that you'll make us more your vision as we work together at the Scriptures this quarter and that they may be able to shape that vision that we have of you and that vision we have of our own lives and the vision of the way that we seek to live as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, I'm going to start on page 21, all being well, which says what the Pentateuch is not. Um, and uh, talking to you, of course, about what it is. When people come to uh, study the Old Testament in a class in Fuller, uh, there are different sorts of assumptions that uh, are sitting in their mind. And some of them are good and true assumptions, but some of them are, are less so. Uh, here's one that uh, influences people, quite rightly, because it's Jesus and it's part of the New Testament, in Luke ch chapter 24, verse 44. So Jesus says, uh, to the disciples uh, when, they, when he has met them after the uh, Emmaus Road story. Uh, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Well, when he talks about, obviously, uh, what he says about the prophets and the Psalms comes in the prophets' course and the writings' course. Uh, but he starts off by talking about the Pentateuch, talking about the law of Moses. What would he be talking about? In what, what um, parts of that uh, are written about him? If you look through the Gospels, and for that matter, uh, the rest of the New Testament, for passages that talk um, about Jesus, that are taken as promising uh, the coming of the Messiah, um, then you'll find that they nearly all come from the prophets and the Psalms, or other parts of the writings, rather um, than from the Pentateuch. Um, and in fact, the uh, only passage that I know of in the Gospels that's referred to as a passage that um, is a kind of messianic, is a, is a prophecy about Jesus, a messianic prophecy, uh, is John uh, chapter 19, verse 36. When Jesus has been uh, crucified... Uh, and uh, one of the soldiers has pierced his side with a spear, um, and, um, but nobody has broken his legs because they can see that his, um, he's already dead. And, says John, these things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled, none of his bones shall be broken. Oh, well, that, that makes sense. Uh, he's um, not, been, not had his bones broken. Um, and that's uh, a fulfilment uh, of something in the uh, Old Testament. Where does it come from? Uh, well, it actually comes in two places. It's the same in the two places, uh, talking about the Passover. Here's the Exodus chapter 12 uh, version. When you're uh, celebrating the Passover, um, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Of course, uh, if the foreigner has been converted, the foreigner can eat of it. That just means somebody who's not actually uh, decided to become an Israelite. Any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he's been circumcised, because that means he's become properly a member of the people of God. No bound or hired servant may eat of it, because he's just an employee and he's not uh, a member of Israel. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the animal outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Excuse me? That doesn't look much like a messianic prophecy, does it? You would never have dreamt that that was a messianic prophecy. Uh, and that, Hello? Uh, it, okay. Um, 
Okay. Let's see how that is. It might, I might need to turn it up. But does that sound better already? Okay. Thank you very much for telling me. Um, keep telling me. It's really great when there are people in the class who will say the things they're thinking. Um, uh, and, like, you know, your trousers have just fallen down. And those kind of things. So, um, you know, please, please do tell me. That's good. Is that, is that sounding better? Now I'm looking that way. Is it still sounding better? I, I, I won't tell everybody you're blushing. Uh, it's, um, yeah. Um, there's, there's nothing clearly prophetic about that um, piece of instruction about how to celebrate the Passover. Uh, and that's typical, in a way, of the way in which um, prophecies, many, many prophecies in the Old Testament in relation to the New Testament work. Um, that is, it's only when you look back from the New Testament that you see some passage in the Old Testament and you go, oh, wow, just look at that. That just helps me to understand what was happening to Jesus, helps to explain what was happening. But you'd never have known when you were reading the Pentateuch um, that that was going to be used that way. You'd never have worked out from the text itself that it was designed to tell you something about what was going, uh, uh, something that was significant about Jesus. Uh, what it's doing there in the Pentateuch is something significant in its own right for what's going on um, between, uh, between God and the people of God in the context. And so we need, whenever necessary, to distinguish between ways in which the New Testament uses passages in the Old Testament uh, in order to help uh, people understand Jesus or understand the church or understand God's purpose in the world in the way that that, uh, those words of Jesus at the end of Luke did when when Jesus talked not only about the way that the scriptures illuminate him but about how uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So, the way in which the Old Testament illumines what God is doing in Christ isn't confined to statements about the Messiah. Um, But we need to distinguish ways in which you can use the Old Testament to help you understand what Jesus is about from what God the Holy Spirit was uh, doing, uh, what God the Holy Spirit was communicating when, uh, when God inspired Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, as part of his ministry to people who he wanted to relate to in Old Testament times. Um, And uh, that means that when you're studying the Pentateuch, assuming that the reason why the Old Testament is there, and that the Pentateuch in particular is there, is is in order to provide you with a sneak preview of Jesus, to use a phrase that a student uh, once used in talking about the understanding that the student uh, had, the assumptions the student had about the Pentateuch before coming to the course. To assume that that's what it's there for is going to mean there's only going to be a microscopic amount of it that's of any um, use to you. There's something else going on in the Pentateuch than giving you a sneak preview of Jesus. Or here's another understanding, which is also uh, common. Uh, it's another phrase uh, from uh, a student. Um, what, what this student thought, assumed, before coming to the course, it's a collection of dusty stories. They happened, but they aren't directly relevant to us. It's really important that they all happened. It's very important it's all factual and historical. But it's, it's just dusty history. It's the prehistory um, of Christian faith. It hasn't got anything to say to us. Indeed, to put it more sharply, as... Um, Another student did to me, actually, in an email today, um, that the way, actually, she was talking about um, what her mother thought. It was a student I had in the course last quarter. 
Um, and she'd been talking to her mo- with her mother about the course or something. Um, and her mother had said, oh, I didn't realize there was anything worth kind of interesting, relevant to us in that Old Testament stuff. I thought it was just to tell you how bad things were before Jesus came. Well, it does tell you how bad things were before Jesus came, but that's not the only thing that it does. Here's um, a description of what it's for um, from 2 Timothy. As for you, says Paul to Timothy, continue, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings. He's not talking about the New Testament because he hasn't finished writing it yet, right? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. As when he goes on and says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for correction, for teaching, reproof, correction and so on. The scriptures, when the New Testament talks about them, um, does not mean the New Testament. Uh, it means the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. But as far as Jesus and the New Testament guys are concerned, it's the scriptures. It's the sacred writings. Notice then how astonishing what Paul um, says about these, um, these writings is. These sacred writings are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They are all of them inspired by God. Paul's word is theopneustos. Um, and... Uh, It's a word that doesn't, it's the, it, that, that doesn't appear anywhere before this time. Um, so maybe Paul invented it. Maybe when you, read, when you read 2 Timothy, you're watching Paul invent words. He does do that. Students do that in, um, in, in, in papers. <laughs> sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose. It's okay. Uh, well, it depends what the word is really, I suppose. Theopneustos, um, uh, you know the word theol as in theology, the word for God. And pneustos, that's tied up with pneumatics and pneuma, uh, and it's the word for spirit or wind. Um, so the uh, long-winded translation of that is uh, inspired by God, or the short-winded one is God breathed, or it might even mean, my private theory is, it means that these writings came into existence because somebody had been blown over by God. But whether it's because God breathed them out or because these people have been breathed over by God, it's not then surprising if what they write is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. That's the, the vision of the significance of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the entire Old Testament, um, that uh, Paul presents, reminds Timothy of, um, and therefore that he uh, invites you to think in terms of, I suggest, when you come to study the Pentateuch. Um, or that, that's about this, those scriptures in general. A couple of other passages from Paul that are about the Pentateuch in particular. Romans 4. In the first, uh, four, the first three chapters of Romans, Paul um, does talk about the bad news, uh, uh, about why it was there was a need for a gospel. And at the end of chapter 3, um, says, okay, in light of that, now I'll tell you what the gospel is. But the question that Paul has to face when he's t- told them the basics about the gospel, when he gets to the end of, chapter, of Romans chapter 3, the question is, is what Paul says scriptural? That is, does it fit with the Old Testament? Now, for us, the question is the other way around. It's, does the Old Testament fit with Paul? 
with, with the New Testament, with Jesus. For the New Testament, for Paul, uh, it's the opposite. It's, uh, it's no good Paul claiming that his gospel is the true gospel if it doesn't fit in with what the scriptures have got to say. And so he faces that question at the beginning of Romans 4. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? Because what I tell you is the gospel has got to fit in with how things were for Abraham, hasn't it? It's got to fit in with Genesis. Otherwise, what I'm saying can't be right. Uh, and so his concern uh, in, in Romans 4 uh, is to demonstrate the fact that his understanding of the gospel fits exactly with the way in which the gospel works, as it were, in the Abraham story, the way in which God related to Abraham. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, he says to the Corinthians. Probably you want to be worried when Paul says brothers and sisters to you because it probably means he's about to hit you around the head. Uh, and that's what he is about to do. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That is, they were all under the pillar of cloud uh, after the Exodus and they all passed through the Red Sea when God parted, parted the waters. So you could say, if you like, all of them were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All of them. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank, from the, they all drank the same spiritual drink. Um, they, they drank in a physical kind of sense, but they also, Paul reckons, were drinking in a spiritual sense. Because they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul assumes that um, what's going on with Israel isn't something that's um, nothing to do with Christ, it's something that Christ himself was involved in before you could kind of see him, before he became incarnate. It's the same God who's involved there. The God who became incarnate in Christ is the God who was involved with the Israelites in the story um, of the Exodus and the Red Sea. But then there's the solemn bit. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and they were struck down in the wilderness. The whole generation of the Israelites who came out of um, Egypt um, died before the people got into the Promised Land uh, because of their rebellion and God wanted to have a clean start with a new generation to take into the land. Now, says Paul, these things occurred... Uh, in order to reassure us that nothing like that could ever happen to us. Oh no, he doesn't seem to say that. <laughs> but that's what we rather assume, I think. Now, says Paul, these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We mustn't put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And we don't complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example and they were written down to instruct us on whom the end of the ages have come. So, if you think you're standing, watch out that you don't fall. No testing has overtaken you that's not common to everyone. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Paul assumes that the situation of the church is uh, analogous to the situation of Israel in the Pentateuch, not totally different from it. 
um, that the pressures that the church is under uh, in the, at the beginning of the uh, story of the church, and I assume it's still the same is true now, are analogous to the pressures that Israel was under. And therefore, the stories of what Israel did and how God dealt with them uh, ought to be illuminating and instructive uh, for the church upon whom the end of the ages has come. Here you are at, at the end with a big E. Um, I don't let you use the word eschatological, and I don't let me use it either. But I've just done it. Oh dear, that's very stupid of me. Um, the eschaton has arrived in Christ. Well, you'd have thought, well, okay, it's, it's, it's a totally new deal now, isn't it? Yeah, it is a totally new deal. When a person's in Christ, it's a new creation, says Paul to these same Corinthians. But he doesn't then assume that it's so different that these stories uh, about Israel don't have significance for the church. They really do. You really need to read these stories, says Paul. So the Pentateuch is not just a collection of dusty stories, things that happened but that aren't directly relevant to us. Whether you're thinking about the individual and the way that you live your life um, with God and you proceed towards maturity in Christ, as Paul uh, speaks in 2 Timothy, or whether you're thinking about the basics of the gospel, as when Paul speaks in Romans 4, or whether you're thinking about what it means to be the church, as when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 10, he assumes that the kind of way that things are described in the Pentateuch is directly illuminating for you. So that's going to be exciting, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you for saying, yeah, they just laughed. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So when you're reading the Pentateuch, it's more like, uh, it's not a collection of dusty stories that aren't directly relevant to us. It's more like a DVD release of a classic old movie, Casablanca or something, that appears in the film buff's top ten, but that no, no ordinary moviegoers movie ever get around to see. But then they, maybe, are amazed at it when they do. But one of the things about watching Citizen Kane or Casablanca or something is, you, at least I find, you have to forget everything that you know about watching movies now and be willing to um, work within, think within, watch within a different framework from the one that we use in order to watch Terminator number 93. Uh, as I put on the sheet then, uh, the Pentateuch needs to be understood in its own terms if we are to let it speak to us. At the side of a coin, what the Pentateuch is not, it's not complete on its own. It's about a purpose for the world that is not fulfilled by the end. Another of those misapprehensions that people have about the Old Testament in general and the Pentateuch in particular is that God's only concerned with, concerned with Israel or the Israelites think God is only concerned with Israel. Uh, you'd think, and people, It's evident that people who think that, well, they haven't read the Psalms to begin with and they haven't read the Prophets and neither have they read the Pentateuch. Because it starts off with God's concern for the whole world. For God's, for God, with God's concern to bless the world. Uh, when you get to the end of the Pentateuch, uh, the world is not in a blessed state yet. Uh, and so um, the Pentateuch and the Old Testament as a whole uh, are not complete. This is about a purpose for the world that isn't, that isn't fulfilled by the end. It's also about a purpose for Israel that isn't fulfilled by the end. 
when things have gone wrong in Genesis 1 to 11 and God settles on Abraham as uh, the one through whom God intends to reach the world through Abraham and his descendants, God gives them some promises which are again about blessing. Um, the people of Abraham are to be the people who experience the blessing that God intended for everybody from the beginning. Not in order that they alone should, inter- should experience it, but because that's going to be God's bridgehead into the world. God makes promises to Abraham about uh, land, a special relationship, blessing, vast increase. And some of those promises, in some ways, get fulfilled within the Pentateuch. But when you get to the end of Deuteronomy, when we come to the end of these five weeks, uh, you, you haven't reached the fulfillment of the key promise of giving the people a land in which they can then embody what it means to be God's people. When you come to the end of Deuteronomy, you are kind of literally teetering, you're on tiptoe. We're now getting into the, we're getting into the land now, aren't we? No, we're not. It's the end of the course. You have to stay for prophets if you want to know about that. <laughs> or you have to turn over the page into Joshua to read about that. The Pentateuch, by its own nature, is not complete, uh, either as an account of God's purpose for the world and its being fulfilled, or as an account of um, a purpose for Israel. That's not, that doesn't get fulfilled by the end. It's, uh, it's a nice question, given that the story carries on in Joshua and Judges and whatnot, why did they separate off the Pentateuch? Um, and nobody really knows, though one uh, plausible guess is to say that it was done in light of the way in which the Israelites were taken off into exile. Uh, and when you're in exile, you're back in the kind of position that people were in at the end of the Pentateuch. Uh, and that's often how Israel thought of itself through the uh, post-exilic period, through the time uh, up until Christ, um, that the promise of God's restoration, of entering into the fullness of God's purpose... Uh, had never quite arrived. Uh, And so seeing yourselves as brought out of Egypt, but not quite yet in the promised land, in the way that the Pentateuch does, expressed for Israel what was actually the nature of their position um, before God. Now that's, that's guesswork, but whatever is the right answer, the Pentateuch itself is a better purpose for Israel that's not fulfilled by the end. And in that sense then, it does lead towards Jesus. It's the beginning of the story that leads from creation to Jesus and that explains Jesus. It's a revelation of the life that Jesus makes a commitment to to, and that Jesus wants us us to live. It's a revelation of the God whom Jesus incarnates and the God whom he makes it possible for us to relate to. Something else the Pentateuch is not. It's not law. The Hebrew title for the Pentateuch is the word Torah, um, which I think I probably use on the front page of the um, syllabus. Do I? Yes, thank you. A.K.A. the Torah. (coughs) The Hebrew word Torah uh, means something like instruction or teaching. Um, uh, You could say that at the moment I am being a more, that's the word for a teacher. Uh, And... uh, that what a teacher gives somebody is Torah. Unfortunately, when the Old Testament got translated into Greek, the word Torah got translated by the Greek word nomos, which is the Greek word for law. And that got translated from Greek into Latin by the Latin word lex, which is the Latin word for law. So when people translated uh, the Bible into 
weird languages like English, um, they used uh, the, the word law or whatever was the equivalent word in those languages. And so a sad thing was perpetuated all the way through that story of, of giving you the impression that what the Pentateuch was was law. It's one of those things that's most obvious that the Pentateuch is law. Except that it isn't. It doesn't take you long to, to work out that that can't be quite right because the Torah itself is not something that starts off by telling you things that you've got to go and do. It starts off by telling you a story. The framework of the whole um, five books is that of a story. It's the story of how God started the world off and how it went wrong and how God started putting it right again and made promises and got the Israelites out of Egypt and took them through Sinai towards the promised land. And there they are then teetering on the edge uh, of the promised land. It's basically a story. It's um, got lots of telling you what to do kind of material inside the story in the same way as, for instance, Matthew's Gospel does when it tells you the Jesus story and puts the Sermon on the Mount in the context of the story. But the, um, Matthew's Gospel works that way because Matthew's Gospel is a Torah kind of story. It's following the example uh, of the way that the Pentateuch works. The Torah is a Gospel-type story. That is, it tells us about what God has done for us. That's what makes it... Gos gospel is about a piece of news, about something that happened. The, the Gospel is... God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. Gospel is a narrative kind of statement. God so loved the world that he gave. The Torah is a narrative kind of statement about what God did. That's what makes it gospel. It tells us about what God has done for us and in that setting it tells us about the response that God looks for from us. Uh, fifth thing that the Torah isn't. It isn't a revelation about a God of wrath. That's what your mother thought, or your Sunday school teacher told you, or what at least the student who uh, was emailing me today uh, said her mother certainly thought. Here's an interesting fact. God is never said to be angry in Genesis. God is said to be hurt, to get hurt, but he's never said to get angry. Now, I'm quite prepared to believe that God does is angry sometimes in Genesis, but I think it's actually really quite telling the Genesis never said, so God get ang got angry, but it does say, so, uh, so God was grieved, God was hurt. There's already there the kind of potential to turn upside down uh, the kind of assumptions that often people make uh, about the nature of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for that matter, Leviticus never talks about God being angry. Now, now often people think that what sacrifice is about is placating God's anger. Well, Leviticus is the great book about sacrifice and it never refers to God's anger. So again, there must be something else going on here um, than a revelation of a God of wrath. <coughs> God is to... It, it, the other, other books of the Pentateuch does, do talk about God getting angry. Now here's the bad news. The people that God gets angry with are us. <laughs> not other people. Um, when the Israelites make the golden calf, then God gets angry, okay, yeah. Um, but the basic message of this story in the Torah uh, is to offer you a revelation about, God, uh, about God's love for the world. About how it's the beginning of the story 
of how God's determined to carry on in relationship with the world, and with Israel in particular, despite what the world came to be, and despite what Israel came to be. I mean, it must have been tempting for God, on a rather a large number of occasions, just to kick them out, to abandon them. And the fact that God keeps going in a relationship with Israel, um, and keeps uh, paying the price in God's own self, if you like, to keep the relationship going, uh, illustrates how the story of the Old Testament as a whole is a story of God's love, of which then Christ's coming is the climax, rather than it's a story about God's wrath, of which, uh, at the end of which Christ's coming is rather a surprise. It's, it's very logical that the God uh, of love whom Israel knew, who kept persisting with them despite all that they did, should be the one who then becomes incarnate in Jesus. It's a revelation of God, of, about God's love for the world. Now, uh, it does talk about God's wrath as well. And one of the things that, uh, that is interesting about the... When, when you do these, um, these, these homeworks and put things on Moodle and so on, when I look at them, uh, I'm always interested at what aspects of the stories, and the laws for that matter, they are that people see. How some people, when they read Genesis, will say, uh, oh, well, God, even though God doesn't use, doesn't use the word anger about God, um, I notice this anger of God's. And other people will say, well, I've read this, these Genesis stories and I'm really struck by the love of God and the uh, mercy of God. Uh, and so one thing, to bear, one thing to learn from one another when you're doing the work in the commenting on each other's um, homeworks, doing that work on Moodle, is to look at what other people as well as you see and by all means psychoanalyze them, but also psychoanalyze you. That is, why do I see that? Why didn't I see what she saw? Why didn't I see what he saw? What, what am I learning about myself um, from the things that I see there? And the last of these six, what the Pentateuch is not, it's not a story or a revelation about an ideal world or an ideal people. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, characteristically happens in, uh, in reading the Pentateuch is that people are, uh, students are horrified at some of the things that God does let people get away with. Um, that's one of the things that I love about the Old Testament because I have a lot to get away with. Um, this is a, the, the, these are books that are about a real world and real people of the kind that we know and that, uh, and that we are. The Pentateuch is about Abraham the wimp. Um, it's about Jacob the deceiver. It's about Moses who dies before he reaches the promised land. It's not um, idealistic, this Pentateuch story. It's about how life really is and how people really are. Further, it's teaching about behaviour for people who are stubborn and have got closed minds. Uh, and it's one of the remar most remarkable mercies of God that God should come to terms with that fact about us uh, and not simply abandon us in it. A passage we'll come back to um, is the discussion between some Pharisees and Jesus about divorce. Is divorce okay then, says, say the Pharisees? Trying to catch him out, as usual. What does it say in the Bible, says Jesus, who's an evangelical? Uh, 
the Pharisees, who are also evangelicals, um, say, uh, that's more serious, they really are. Um, uh, they're people who want to take the word of God really seriously. Uh, okay, so what does it say in Scripture? Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her, say the Pharisees. Okay, that's one thing it says in the Bible. What else does it say in the Bible, though, says Jesus? Because of your hardness of heart, he says, he, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, quote, God made them male and female, unquote. Quote, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two become one flesh, unquote. So, comments Jesus, they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, that, that offers uh, one, that's one, one of Jesus' several really illuminating um, comments about the nature uh, of the Torah, the nature of the instruction material, the law in the narrow sense in the Pentateuch. Uh, it's, it's a great hermeneutical clue, hermeneutical key. Isn't that a wonderful... I've got in the word hermeneutic and the word eschatological, and we've only been going for three quarters of an hour. <laughs> a key to interpreting... Uh, why the laws in the Torah work the way they do uh, is what Jesus offers you there. In offering you the, um, the distinction between what God really intended from the beginning uh, and the kind of thing that makes allowance for human hardness of heart. The way in which when we went wrong, God didn't say, well, okay, you're on your own now. Uh, but in which God gave them laws which made allowance for how they were so that, for instance, when divorce happened... Um, in order, when marriages fell apart, in order that the woman should uh, have something that um, gave some evidence of what her status was, uh, then, uh, then she has a certificate of divorce. Um, she's not just left as somebody of indeterminate status. Um, God doesn't want the divorce to happen, but God recognises divorce happens, so God has a regulation uh, that, um, that fits the, um, the fact that these things happen. And that's so because, uh, says Jesus, of what the NRSV calls your hardness of heart. Um, the word heart, um, in the, mostly in the Old Testament and pretty much in the New too, uh, doesn't refer to your emotions, it refers to your thinking. Your emotions are further down than your heart in biblical thinking, usually. Sometimes it means the emotions, but more often it's, it's what we would call the mind. Your heart is the thing that you form attitudes with and that you make decisions with. Um, it's the thing you think with. It's where you do your thinking. Um, so it's because of your hardness of mind or your stubbornness of mind um, that Moses gave you this regulation. Um, and the regulations in the Torah um, are very often making allowance for the fact that people are stubborn and have got closed minds. It's teaching about behaviour for a people who are stubborn and have got closed minds. Um, another way to put it is to say that it's God's attempt to pull this people a bit nearer to what God's people could be. Think again of those stories in 1 Corinthians 10 about how things went wrong in the wilderness. Um, God is realistic about, about what the nature of the people of God is. Uh, and this is not a story or a revelation uh, about an ideal people but about an, an actual people, as is not a story or a revelation um, or a set of instructions for, merely for ideal people, but for actual people.
Uh, okay, that's what the Pentateuch is not. Anybody want to say anything so far? Uh, can you still hear me? Okay, what we're going to do now is this. Um, uh, I, somewhere near the back of this stuff, it says in the instructions for today, today page 128, but in mine it's 126. There's a page that says US values. Is it 126? Can uh, you find that? If, um, talk? It says 126, thank you. Um, and th that's near the back of the book because we're gonna, we'll, we'll come to that again near the end of the quarter and to look at those values uh, in light of looking at Deuteronomy. But what I want us to do today is have a first look at, at those. Um, and as it says in the schedule for today, uh, I think, um, I invite you to think about what are US values and what you would add to that list on page 1 to 6 or what you subtract from it. Uh, and I'll do that um, with the two or three people just around you. Don't kind of move. Just turn your chair around if you need to or just talk to the guy next door, however it works, just so that you get a chance, chance to talk with two or three people about that list. Um, and if uh, amongst your two or three there are people from another culture, uh, then they can by all means um, suggest values from their culture um, that would contrast with that list. Uh, and... Um, make some notes on your uh, online copy or your, on your computer copy or on your hard copy um, and then later in the, later in the quarter as I say we'll, um, we'll come back to that so would you like to do that uh, let's do that for 10 minutes okay you can say hello to this person and say my name is so and so and then one sentence about yourself but you can't spend 10 minutes telling them everything you did last week okay <laughs> go